Hey everyone, welcome to the Goodbye Privacy Podcast. I am your host, James Azar. Make sure you're following me on Twitter, James underscore Azar1, or you can follow the link below this very video to get there. Also, make sure that if you're listening, that you're subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star review. That helps us a ton in staying in new and noteworthy on Apple uh, podcast and other platforms as well. And now let's get to today's episode where we're going to be talking about the face app. Yep. The app that reminded you that you're going to look just like your father 30 years down the road and what really is and what it really is all about. GDPR fines and the encryption backdoor that government's been asking for. So let's get started with the latter. Attorney General William Barr has argued that law enforcement should have a backdoor to encryption and that the security risks of that are extremely minimal. Um, U.S. Attorney General William Barr has said consumers should accept the risks that encryption backdoors pose to their personal cybersecurity to ensure law enforcement can access encrypted communication. This was in a speech on Tuesday of this week in New York where the U.S. Attorney General parroted much of the same rhetoric from his predecessors and other senior staff at the Justice Department calling on tech companies to do more to assist federal authorities to gain access to devices with a lawful order. Encrypted messaging has really taken off in recent years, making its way to Apple products, Facebook, Instagram, and the popular messaging app WhatsApp. A response from Silicon Valley to the abuse of access by intelligence services in the wake of the Edward Snowden revelation in 2013 was one of the reasons that um, tech companies started encrypting messages. But law enforcement says encryption throttles their access to communications they claim they need for uh, prosecution of criminals. The government calls this going dark because they can't see into encrypted communication and it remains a key talking point by the authorities. Critics, including lawmakers and security experts, have long said there is no secure way to create a backdoor access to encrypted communication for law enforcement without potentially allowing malicious hackers to also gain access to people's private communications. In remarks, Barr said, and this is quoting the attorney general, significance of the risk should be assessed based on its practical effect on consumer cybersecurity as well as its relation to the net risks that offering the products poses for society. He suggested that the residual risk of vulnerability resorting from incorporating a lawful access mechanism is materially greater than those already in the unmodified product. He continues, some argue that to achieve at best a slight incremental improvement in security, it is worth imposing a massive cost on society in the form of degraded safety. The risk, he said, was acceptable because, and quoting again, we are talking about consumer products and services such as messaging, smartphones, email, and voice and data applications. We're not talking about protecting the nation's nuclear launch codes. The attorney general said it was unattainable that devices offer uncrackable encryption while offering zero access to law enforcement. Now, Barr is just one of the latest attorney generals to really bring this uh, situation up uh, in public, if you recall, uh, after the San Bernardino attacks, Apple refused to cooperate with the FBI uh, to unencrypt the Apple device, claiming they had no such tool. Later on, a company by the name of Celebrite was able to actually 
break through Apple's encryption and give law enforcement the access they needed for that mobile device. Now, the U.S. isn't alone in calling for this. William Barr isn't standing on its own. Earlier this year, the United Kingdom authorities proposed a new backdoor mechanism, the so-called Ghost Protocol, which would give law enforcement access to encrypted communication as though they were part of a private conversation. Apple, Google, Microsoft, and WhatsApp have all rejected the proposal by the U.K., Now, the FBI inadvertently undermined its going dark argument last year when it admitted that a number of encrypted devices it claimed it couldn't gain access to was overestimated by the thousands. Current FBI Director Christopher Rye said that the number of devices it couldn't gain access to was less than a quarter of the claimed 7,800 phones and tablets. Barr has not ruled out pushing legislation to force tech companies to build these back doors. So, just touching on this before we get into the FaceApp thing, the matter around this specific issue is, should government have backdoor access to encrypted messages, number one? Number two, what should be the procedure by which they gain access to it? So part of the argument is a lawful order, but is that FISA? Is that open court? Is that a sealed uh Uh, indictment i mean how do they get access to this encryption and then what constitutes privacy if they have access to our encrypted messages what constitutes a lawful order at what point does that become over or under and i i get the idea of national security i get the fact that we need to catch bad guys before they do bad things i've yet to see a case where had we had access to encrypted messages we stopped, we would have stopped this terrible thing from happening. We're going to continue to follow this here on Goodbye Privacy. I don't think this is going to get anywhere. I think this is a, a, a headline story that was done this week by Attorney General Barr. We haven't seen this gain traction. I mean, obviously, we know that in China and Russia and other places, there is no such thing as encrypted messaging. They see and read everything. The question is, Does the U.S. and the Western world, the advanced Western society, need to do the same as those countries simply for the sake of arguing national security? Before we proceed, I want to invite you to join us on September 11th in Atlanta, Georgia for the annual Cyber Hub Summit. Cyber Hub Summit is the go-to cybersecurity conference for executives and those that are extremely passionate about cybersecurity. CyberHub Summit isn't just another conference with long, boring panels and speakers who are talking about uh, giving you a sales pitch, but rather CyberHub Summit Summit focuses on helping attendees experience cyber different. This year, CyberHub Summit has an amazing agenda of practical cybersecurity exercises to help you touch up your cybersecurity skills, whether you're in the cybersecurity space or you just own a business and want to get your hands and wrap your mind around the cybersecurity threats. The event will be hosted in, at Atlanta Sweetwater Brewery. The event is not open to the general public. To apply, you should go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James. Again, that's cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James, cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James, where you can apply to attend the summit. Um, If you are an executive of an organization, you will be 
granted access. If you are a cybersecurity vendor, you can reach out to CyberHub Summit on their website to be part of the event. The event is closed to non-participating cybersecurity vendors. So again, go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James to apply now to attend this year's CyberHub Summit, where, of course, I will be uh, moderating the event. Very much looking forward to it. Now to today's main topic, FaceApp. Oh, we all remember the FaceApp challenge from a week ago when our feeds everywhere, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat had people looking old. I'm grateful that I did not have to see Micah's looking 30 years older. I can only picture what that would look like now, and I cringe at the thought of it. (laughs) I also am proud that I didn't do mine as well. I, I, I didn't get into the face app challenge. I didn't find it to be something exciting, although it was um very funny for me because as I started to look into this thing and going, wow, this is very, very interesting. Who would benefit from it? Well, lo and behold, a few days later, all the red warning lights come on. FaceApp is actually owned by a Russian company out of St. Petersburg. And the Russians now know what we're all going to look like in 30 years that Putin, he's a freaking bastard. So FaceApp essentially uses AI to work its magic and it feeds your pictures through its algorithm in order to change your appearance, which means the photo you upload must be stored on its servers for the process to take place. That's the real kind of threat there. The The, the privacy policy that the FaceApp had was, was extremely loose which is why people got really freaked out and started um, erasing the app and hoping that their data would be gone from there. But for those who think that, you are extremely wrong. Forbes, our friends at Forbes, and um, Thomas Brewster actually wrote a story yesterday on FaceApp and who was behind it. So I kind of read through that, did a little bit of my own research. So the guy who founded the company actually used to work on Windows Mobile for Microsoft and he's um and he was a co-founder of a company that actually sold to Russia's Google a company by the name of Yandex in a 38 million dollar deal that made him wealthy that's considered rich in Russia 38 million makes you wealthy apparently maybe he's an oligarch now in uh, <laughs> Vladimir Putin's inner circle sitting at the Kremlin eating caviar and taking shots of vodka and going ha kharasho um but his name is Yaroslav Goncharov. And his biggest success, apparently, is FaceApp. Um, FaceApp's a company of 12 um, people only. Um, Yaroslav himself is a 40-year-old. And he's created a very, very powerful app. Um, it's been topped in the download charts for both Android and iOS this past week. Millions of uh, people have followed it. People like Dwayne Wade, Drake, Iki Azalea, and all doing the face app challenge. The challenge was simple. Take the photo, apply the aging filter, and post on Instagram, Twitter, or wherever of the older you. And then came the storm. So what I want to say, 
it's great that we have celebrities and people to follow, but understand Wade, Wade, Drake, and Iggy aren't exactly known for their intellectual capital, nor their privacy capital. And so sometimes you just have to kind of look at who's doing what to really get an idea of it. But Yaroslav did tell Forbes that he plans to calm the privacy storm around the face app. He says that the new face app terms and conditions will likely remove references to the rights of the company that it claimed over people's images. He says that the current terms uh, that grant face app almost complete ownership over submitted faces, letting the company use, alter and sell the photo however it wants with no compensation for the user is how people got scared because they think everything we say in policy we do, which of course is not the case at all. Um, Yaroslav, hey, buddy, when you write a policy, people think that's what you're doing. You don't write policy just for the sake of mumbo-jumbo. Policy is policy because it is bylaws. It's how people do business with you. It's why people trust you, buddy. Maybe you should brush up on some of your policy skills before you release another app. He says the terms were so broad because he had planned earlier to turn FaceApp into a social network for faces. Another bullshit way to try to spin what firestorm he's been through. To do this kind of product, our privacy policy had to be very similar to what Instagram had. Our current privacy policy is very similar to what Instagram has, but nobody blames Instagram because it's Instagram, he adds. Uh, Yaroslav, if you would listen to my podcast, you would know that we actually did review the terms and conditions that Instagram and Facebook and WhatsApp actually give people. That was one of our first episodes ever. And I would urge you to go listen to it because your terms and policies are nothing like Instagram, buddy. Not even remotely close. Nowhere near it. You have violated multiple privacy laws and regulations that are in place globally with your loose terms and conditions. And that's one of the challenges with downloading apps from unknown developers across the world on your mobile device and then allowing them to get access to your phone and your data. You're giving people uninhabited access with no real repercussions to what they can do with that data. That's something for all of you guys to consider. And there's no need to mirror. Now, there's no need to mirror the privacy policy of the Facebook-owned app. He continues to say, and I quote, it's my personal top priority to fix our privacy policy in terms of use. He continues to say, hopefully, it won't take too long. He's hoping to get that done in the next month or so. A little too late, too long. I think FaceApp is dead. I'll get to that in a little bit here towards the end. He reiterates that the company deletes photos in 48 hours, asking the Amazon and Google servers that they use on which the app runs to automatically wipe data that's been on the system for that time. He also notes that photos aren't used for any commercial purposes. As for why the company stores faces on a server for 48 hours, he answered that users don't want to have to re-upload a photo every time they apply a new filter, so the images has to stay on the server temporarily. So I'm going to take out, um, Micah, we really need to invest in a bullshit alarm, like on my desk with like a woo, 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 calling bullshit. 
If you upload your photo on FaceApp, it's there forever. So what does he mean by 48 hours? What does that really mean? It actually means nothing, not a darn thing, folks. All it means is that there are um, that he's claiming that Amazon and Google servers that they use to run the app delete this data, which we haven't. The Forbes article claims to have no proof. Everything we've looked at doesn't make any sense. He might be doing it, and the reason for it is more money than it is anything else simply because the more data you're using on your Amazon and Google servers, the more you're paying them. And so to reduce the cost, you may be wiping it, but it has nothing to do with privacy. I think very little. And I think you're only wiping, you know, predominantly data, but you're leaving your cash there. There's a lot of different ways to manipulate this. I don't buy this. I'm calling bullshit on it. Um, He also claims that little will change, therefore, at the code level, though there is a new notification when opening the app asking the user to confirm that they are happy that photos will be taken to a remote clouds. Besides, it's not FaceApp that users should be worried about when it comes to privacy, but all the other apps they're already using. Again, Yaroslav trying to deflect. Um, their, Their issues to other places. He really, if he made so much freaking money when this hit, he should have hired a PR company to help him do this. He is really not helping himself at all because he claims, and I continue, this is to Forbes, there are so many other apps that collect much more data. We just don't. No, you collect people's faces. In When people download your app, you say we have full Uh, rights to all your photos we can use them we don't have to pay you jack nothing we can store it we can access your device and so forth Um, he claims that he owns 100 percent of the business and that he's been very successful uh, and 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 it's an unusual success he boasts Uh, without providing substantial data to forbes he claims that FaceApp has been profitable since the first launch two years ago with good revenue and growth figures we're very profitable he says i could have easily gotten an investment from silicon valley but we had enough to grow organically um that's why yaroslav says he has no need for silicon valley investors for now he says he may approach vcs in the futures Others in the bubble of business of photo apps have either taken big funding rounds or been acquired snapchat snapped up Loxory for reported $150 million in 2015 and Teleport for $8 million in 2018 to help grow its library of AI-powered filters, while Oakland-based photo app Vesca raised $90 million over two rounds. Now, how does FaceApp really make money? Because um, it's a free app. But they do have a paid-for subscription version, but the founder has declined to say how much revenue they're really making and how many customers he how many paying customers he actually has he wouldn't disclose the user number so very kind of interesting for the fact that he wouldn't share that i wonder how many people actually paid the app to use its upgraded features now we understand these but what's the real threat behind this app well, first of all, we're, we're starting to move away from a biometric world in cybersecurity. 
uh, sorry, we're from a password world and in security, we're moving to a biometric world today to access your phone. It looks at your photo to get into your bank account. It looks at your picture. And that's only going to increase over time because that's another way to authenticate a user. So some of the prospects of the company maybe being acquired by the Russian government is to build its facial recognition capabilities. Russia is certainly advancing its surveillance with facial recognition, and those activities have certainly involved the use of viral photo apps, among many others. But on the surface, it really doesn't seem to be much of a concern um, unless you really do travel to Russia. But when we look at identity theft or building bots for Twitter and Facebook, that's a whole different story. So uh, Javelin Strategy and Research um, did a market analysis and they found that account takeover fraud cost consumers around $5 billion in 2017. And there are reports of scammers using fake IDs in person at phone stores to swap SIM cards or growing way to hijack the person's phone. For scammers, the game is simple. They start by acquiring your personal details from one of any number of high-profile data breaches you can think of. Think of Equifax, OPM, you name it, Marriott. With your name, address, phone number, and other information in tow, they can create the text needed for a fake ID, but they still need your photo. We'll get to that in just a second. But before we proceed, I want to, again, invite you to join us on September 11th in Atlanta, Georgia for CyberHub Summit. You can apply to attend now. Go to cyberhubsummit.com forward slash James. Again, CyberHub Summit forward slash James. CyberHub Summit forward slash James to apply to attend. And so if hackers can actually use all this information that's readily available online, and now they have our photos, they can recreate passports, they can change our date of birth ever so slightly to create a fake identity with our image on it. And as things become more around biometrics, we stand to see a new type of identity theft this isn't some guy using your social security number to get a loan, uh, but but so, so much more than that. So much more than that. And it has the idea and concept of really breaking it down and creating a international database of people that can be used for a number of things beyond just identity theft and beyond just financial fraud, criminal activity and so much more. Here's my tip. If you're going to use an app, if you're going to give it access, research the company that does it on every app. There's the name of the company that does it. Go to their website, see where they're located, see who they are. It takes just a few seconds to do that, but those few seconds matter for your privacy, for your information. I think that face app's going to get in trouble because from my understanding, I haven't seen anything that says that um, they are compliant with GDPR regulation. And so I feel like they're, you know, even though they're not in the EU, I think Yuroslav stands to stay in Russia for the rest of his natural life because I think if he lands in the EU, he's probably uh, going to get picked up and, 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 and get a conversation spoken to him about the fact that, you know, Hey, you want to sell stuff in Europe? You got to be GDPR compliant. You can't just hide behind the mask. 
this is one of the aspects of cybersecurity and the global world we live in today and privacy is in our app stores, in our daily lives, we interact with different brands and companies in apps where we don't really know their background and we're giving them a ton of information, personal, sorry, personal information. And so that's something we really do need to pay attention to going forward. If you have kids, make sure you're seeing what apps they download, what apps they're using, what are the terms of use of those apps, and so much more. And finally, GDPR fines and the FTC has fined Facebook $5 billion. So here's where we're at, folks. Spoken about this a few times, and now the FTC fined Facebook $5 billion for the Cambridge Analytica analytics um, scandal post the 2016 elections. British Airways was fined $230 million. Marriott was fined $125 million in the UK for their GDPR violations. And... Some people celebrate these fines and say, finally, the government's doing something something about it. Others, like myself, look at it and go, what a great money grab that the government just did. And I'm going to kind of present an argument for you to you folks in a very understandable manner. When a government, and, and Equifax, uh, obviously, settlement for close to $700 million is another one. So... Here's the deal. These companies, and I've said it before, are victims of crime. Some are reckless. They've left their front door open. They've been inviting people in and out, and they're not even watching who comes in and who goes out. You should find those companies. Absolutely. If it's reckless and it's careless and it's with our information, you should absolutely find them. But companies that did the best, that really had the right policies in place, and messed up once, should they be fined? And is that the right approach? And I'll give you that. Ex- I'll give you this example for you to ponder about. Said this at the, uh, uh, multiple times on the CyberHub Engage podcast, and I've said it on this podcast a few times. So, let's imagine your home, and your home has a locked front door, locked windows. And you've left your blinds open because you want sunlight in for your dog, cat, or just you want sunlight in your home. You don't want your home to be dark. You don't want to walk into a dark home. And a guy walks by your house, sees your, looks into your window, sees you've got a nice TV, decides to grab a brick, break your window, which was locked, front door locked, back door locked. You've got cameras inside your home. That's fine. And they go in, they steal your TV, they take your valuables, they go ransack your bedroom. You come home a few hours later, you detect that someone has broken into your home. You call 911, you call your insurance company, you call your friends and family, and you go, oh my God, they've stolen shit out of my house. Very, very difficult time. You feel your trust has been 
taken advantage of. You go, everything was locked. I did everything right. You don't understand it. The police come and they say, you know what? You're absolutely right. Your door was locked. Your window was also locked. But you should have really closed your curtains. Because maybe if you closed your curtains, you wouldn't have seen your shiny TV or shiny vase or artwork or whatever. And the person wouldn't have had the instinct to break into your home. So while we understand that you did most of everything right, it was a uh, crime of opportunity. All you should have done was just close your blinds. We're going to fine you, you know, $1,000 or $5,000 because, you know, we had to come out here and investigate this and write a report. And really, it's your fault. That's what these fines really are to some of these companies. British Airways wasn't found negligent of anything when their breach happened. Marriott, their breach was due to a failure in uh, the the due diligence part of the merger and acquisition on a cyber attack that happened four years earlier at, at Starwood that was thought to have been taken out of their entire systems, but really remnants of it stayed in. And then as the merger started taking place and the connection to the IT systems, that expanded. So these guys didn't leave their doors open. They they weren't reckless. They weren't Equifax. Equifax didn't patch a known vulnerability. They didn't have a project management software to help them manage different updates and things that needed to be done. They were reckless and careless with our information and that's why the ceo cio and many people lost their jobs at the organization and why they were just fined 700 million which was really a slap on the wrist i think that's uh um uh that's not even a message it's not a lot of money for equifax and facebook was fined five billion dollars in the first quarter of this year they made 15 billion just in the first quarter alone so, mind you, I don't think this fine even tickles anything. Although, part of the FTC terms is that Mark Zuckerberg has to sign off on all privacy decisions and kind of carry some sort of personal liability. So, that may make for a more transparent Facebook as they move forward from this FTC fine. I don't know that that makes a more transparent industry. It'd be interesting to see how that kind of breaks down. But these fines are nothing but a cash grab by governments who instead of supporting businesses who are going up against nation states who have an unlimited amount of resources and funding or or organizations that are hired by nation state and given nation state support to go out and attack and obtain data instead of helping them were finding them for it and really the only people that make money off of it is the government while everyone else is kind of left to lurch in the dark, uh, British Airways isn't going to, it's not going to cost its shareholders anything. It will cost its employees um, raises, jobs. It will cause a loss of investment in, in, in other things the company may have planned on doing now uh, because they have to pay this fine. And most people ignore the aspects of it. They think, oh, well, these companies make millions and billions of dollars. And really, this money is going to go to the shareholders anyways. That's very rarely the case. Um, I encourage you to, to, 
to, to just read a little bit about economics and how companies like that operate. But the money that they earn, part of it does go to their shareholders and that, that, that is reflected in the stock price. A lot of that money does go into reinvesting in the business, upgrading fleet, uh, creating new jobs, R&D. So, so there's actual, the, the real victims here are not only the employees and the companies, but the potential projects that have been shelved now for a year or two until the company can actually uh, get back and, and reinvest that money. And all for what? Really all for what? So I have a proposition to make. My proposition is really simple. Let's get all major enterprise businesses to pay a specific percentage, a quarter, half of a percent, 1% of their revenue. Call it a cybersecurity funding tax. And we that funds a coalition within Homeland Security, within the Cyber Infrastructure and Security Agency, within CISA, that will work with these enterprise businesses on building a level uh, a level of cooperation and a level of support to deal with the various cyber threats. We did something very similar after 9-11. Let's not wait for a cyber kind of zero-day attack to do something. Let's be proactive about it. Today, we all pay a 9-11 fee when we buy an airline ticket that's passed on to consumers. Uh, enterprise business can obviously decide to pass that on or take it on themselves. But let's not find them unless they're reckless. Let's help them deal with these, uh, with Russia and Iran and all these various nation states who are attacking U.S. and global companies for the sake of economic espionage and having other organizations look at their companies and go, well, you know, we don't hear about these guys getting a breach, right, because they're in China and Russia and they have, the government has backdoor and that's where they want you to go. They want to, um, they want to take down some of these Western companies and replace them with their own. So let's create a privately funded government-supported organization where CISA can serve as a catalyst to enable cybersecurity within organization that then trickles down from the enterprise to the medium-sized companies, from them to the small businesses, and helps increase uh, cybersecurity posture across the entire country, and it'd be technically funded by private enterprise. That's my proposal. Be glad to hear yours of how we solve this. But this isn't going to get done. We're not going to solve this by finding these companies out the wazoo if they're getting the job done. And like I say, I'm not advocating for no fines. I'm saying find them if they're reckless. Equifax should have been fined way more than $700 million. Their settlement should have been much higher that's what was negotiated. King and Spalding, folks. That's the law firm. You can talk to them about that. But British Airways, Marriott, 
bunch of other companies that have that have been fined for data breaches. Um, if you haven't listened to our CyberHub Engage podcast and you just listen to Goodbye Privacy, you can go to CyberHub Engage and listen to a podcast I did with LabMD uh, CEO uh, Michael Daughtry about what the FTC did to his small business and how they took him out of business for a breach he wasn't really responsible for and how they essentially uh, chased him down. There's so much more on this topic that I could go on for, but in respect of our time and your time, I encourage you to submit your proposals. You can go to Twitter, James underscore Azar1. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn at CyberHub Engage. Submit your feedback, your questions, your proposals. We'd love to hear more about it. That's it for me today. And this week, and then next time on Goodbye Privacy, Google, the empire of information, data, and invasion of privacy. My name is James Azar. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week.